Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you for the power of the cross, the death of the Son of God for our sins, for our sake. Lord, we who are not worthy, nor ever would be, will never earn the salvation that you provided. We acknowledge again that it is all of your grace, it is all of your provision. The work is finished on the cross of Jesus. So Lord, as we approach you now to look to your word, Lord, guard us from uh, trying to work for our salvation, but to work out our salvation. Lord, help us to, to respond out of love and out of thankfulness, to hear your word, to respond in loving obedience to that which you call us to do, that which you call us to be. Thank you, Father, that we are, no matter what we do or how we, how we are, we are clothed in Christ through faith, and that is what allows us to approach your throne. Father, glorify yourself now through the preaching of your word. Fill us with your spirit. Be our teacher today. Speak to each one exactly what they need to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Genesis today. Genesis. We're going to take a little brief, just brief one week uh, uh, break from Numbers. Uh, those of you who were here last week, you heard us preach out of Numbers chapter 4. And so, um, and uh, this, uh, this afternoon, I'd like to just preach to us out of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, there's something in Numbers chapter 4 that made me think of this particular uh, passage uh, and I wanted to share that with you, uh, just, just as a, just a way of reminder for us that, um, that many of the things that we find in the scriptures are repeated. There's themes that are just repeated throughout scripture. And one of those themes we're going to see is, the, is that God provides a covering for our sin through the death of, uh, through the death of, uh, of an animal and eventually the death of Christ. All right, so the covering of sins we're going to be, Genesis chapter 3, verse 20 to 24, and uh, <clears throat> we'll, we're just going to read, I'll read it uh, as we go along. You know, the problem is we're, we're talking about sin, and Genesis chapter 3 is a, is a key passage on sin. It talks about the, how sin enters the world when, sa- when the serpent, Satan through the serpent, deceived uh, Eve, and, and, and then uh, Eve gave to Adam, Adam ate, well, and they, they ate the fruit of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And through that point, they came to know evil. Uh, not only know it in their head, but they knew it experientially because they disobeyed God's word. Then came uh, God's, the, the curse of sin and upon them, where God pronounced the curse upon uh, Adam and Eve, uh, upon the serpent, upon Adam, upon Eve. And we see, but yet in that we see a promise of, the, of hope for them. And in today's passage we see that even as they are in their fallen state, Adam and Eve fallen in sin, they, they continue to, uh, they, God gives hope to them in the midst of their fallen state that there's a covering for sin. You know, <clears throat> you know uh, no matter how you, however you count the age of the earth, whether thousands or you think millions, billions years later, the problem of man is still the same. There's still sin. Sin is still man's greatest problem. We could say it's all these other things in the world, but everything else can be really traced back to sin. Sin is mankind's greatest problem. The world cannot deny the reality of man's sinful nature because its effects are seen everywhere, all around us, in our world, and in our lives. Even though, 
but even those who would acknowledge that sin is a problem really do not have an answer. You know, if it's, if it's an education, we really, we have, hopefully we learn that you really can't educate people out of sin. Uh, it's about maybe throwing money at it. There's no amount of money you can spend. There's no amount of education. You, maybe you can legislate it. Maybe you can make rules about it. But even we've learned through our history that even the legislation of rules cannot solve the problem of sin. It has not freed us from sin. It's not freed us from its effects, no matter how much man has tried to work at it. The truth is, only God can solve the problem of our sin. It is God who provided that solution to our problem through sending his son, right? And this is why we exist as a church. We're all about the cross of Christ. We're all reminding ourselves that Jesus Christ, God sent his son, die on the cross for all our sins. And that's it, and that's truth. And that is the, God's solution for our sin. He sent him to die on our place. He gave us, and God gave us in his word to reveal the truth of this in, his, in the book from Genesis to Revelation. A lot of times we think Jesus is just found only in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the, really the promise of the gospel, the promise of forgiveness and salvation in Christ is found from Genesis all the way to Revelation. God is the source of salvation from the very day that mankind fell into sin, yeah, even from eternity past. And our passage this morning reminds us of this great truth, that God is our source of hope and salvation. And he was for Adam and Eve, and he is for the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve today. The, uh, as you just kind of reflecting upon, the, after the, the entrance of the conception of sin in verse 1 to 7, God's confrontation of sin in verse 8 to 13, the curse of sin in verse 14 to 19, we saw that Adam and Eve were in a, in a terrible state. They were doomed to die. Throughout human history, God pronounced that they, they would be pain in childbirth. There would be marital disharmony. There would be toilsome labor. And there would be death for mankind, for all their descendants. Every single family that has ever lived has experienced these sorrows. None of us are, has escaped these troubles. All of us have been affected in some way or another. But in the very things that God had meant to be a blessing, children, marriage, work, and life itself even. They've all, these blessings from God have been affected by sin. And we experience the the curse of that throughout our days. The challenges of it, the frustrations, the agonies, the sleepless nights, because sin is an effect upon mankind. And though we have sin as an effect upon our world, it's not hopeless for us. In today's verse, we're going to learn, we're going to learn our uh, it's for us an outline of, uh, we're going to look at three events. Hmm. Let's go ahead and get that next slide there. Uh, three moments, or three moments for fallen Adam and Eve that hint at the hope of salvation for sinful mankind. Three moments, we're going to look at three, three kind of little, small little statements really here, but they hint at the hope of salvation for sinful mankind. Okay? That's what we're going to look at today, and hopefully that will uh, be something that encourages you. They seem, even as you read it, they're going to seem very simple statements, but if we look at, the, the, look at these themes throughout Scripture, we'll see that they're, they're hints at greater themes all throughout the Scriptures. All right? So uh, they're, they're much like the, the, the first gospel promise in chapter 3, verse 15, where the seed of the Women would crush the seed of the serpent. Uh, it seems um, somewhat vague, 
But it, just like that, in a similar way, these uh, five verses are going to encourage us with these hints of the promise of the gospel, that salvation is of the Lord, and there's salvation for mankind, even in our fallen state. All right, so the first thing we're going to see, uh, the first uh, is that for Adam and Eve, that they are, uh, that for Adam and Eve, they believed in God's promise, and this is a hint of the, the salvation that God provides. There is the, they believed in God's promise. Now the man, verse 20, now the man called his wife's name Eve. And she was the, uh, because she was the mother of all the living. Okay, that's a pretty straightforward verse. He he called her Eve at this point. Up to this point, it didn't seem like he had a name for her. Just called her, maybe uh, uh, he was called man and she was called woman. Uh, But uh, he called his wife Eve at this point. And by itself, the verse explains simply a naming. Adam had named, if you think about it, he had named other, uh, other of God's creations. Uh, he had named the animals. Uh, and now he is naming even Even in the naming of something, there is an is a indication of, of authority. There is that Adam has authority. Over his he's, he's the head of his household. Uh, and so he names her. But Eve. But there's a little more to this than just the authority is conveyed. It is conveys authority, but it also demonstrates two things that are true in Adam's mind. There's a recon- First of all, there's a recognition of God's promise, a recognition of God's promise. And then secondly, there's faith in God's word. That in naming his wife Eve, he recognizes something that God has promised earlier in the text, and his faith in what God promised. First of all, the recognition of God's promise. Okay. The, you remember the penalty for the eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What was it? It was, it was certain death. You will surely die, is what God said. You're going to die. There's no, no, uh, and as soon as he ate it, Adam and Eve, they did die. They died spiritually in that they were separated from God because of that sin. It became a barrier between them and God. But God in his mercy did not kill them immediately. He could have, but he did not. And so that day, Adam's once perfect body began to decay. He began to experience the effect of sin. And he lived, of course, a very long life, at least compared to us today. Uh, But as time goes on, especially after the flood, uh, the life of mankind starts shortening quite quite, uh, 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 strongly. According to uh, verse 19, the curse of sin would lead to his inevitable death, that he would die. But the good news was that Adam and Eve would would live beyond the day that they ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They, they could have died. God could have struck them down. Uh, God has, has not, um, like what we learn in, uh, in Numbers chapter 4, if a, if a Levite would even would touch or, or even look at the, the whole most all objects, they would die. It would no choice about it. You could die right there and then. So God could have struck them down here, but he doesn't. He, lets, he, he allows them to live beyond the day. Not only would they live beyond the day, but according to God, what God had said during the curse, they would live old enough to bear children themselves, right? Uh, he talked about curse, he talk, in the curse of Eve, you would, uh, uh, the, she, he said to her, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. So in spite of their sin, Adam and Eve would continue to experience the, the blessing of, of living, and not only living, but being fruitful and multiply. They would have children. So Adam recognized, in, by naming Eve, the, the, her name, he recognized that God mercifully promised them ongoing physical life. 
that there would be life would continue for mankind, at least physically, despite their spiritual death. And that's why he names his wife Eve, because she is the mother of all the living. So he has recognition that God promised that she would give birth, and she would give birth to other living men, sons and daughters of God, sons and uh, men and women, who would then in turn would bear other life. So she was called Eve. And so we see not only a recognition of God's promise then, he, by calling her Eve, that she, she'd be the mother of all living, but in doing so, by, he believed what God said. And that's the second thing. He believed God's word. He had faith in God's word. He had faith of what God had promised. And God had said that though they were condemned to death, that God said that they would live beyond um, these, this day, live long enough to bear children, uh, who in turn would bear other children thus preserving the human race. So from the very first day that sin entered the human race, we see man's faith, man's faith in God's promise. And that's an important principle because the principle of the requirement of man to have faith in God's promise is a necessity all throughout Scripture. All throughout Scripture, we see the necessity of faith. It begins in Genesis, it goes all the way through Revelation. It is a faith in God and his promise for salvation is this major theme. This is a major theme. And that's why we see in Genesis chapter 6, when Noah, where Noah was told to build an ark for a rain that he had never seen, for a flood that he never experienced, that he would, where God says, I'm Troy, Noah believed God and he built the ark and he, and he uh, brought all the animals into it as God uh, brought to him just as the Lord had commanded him. In Genesis 12, Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, believed God's promise and left the Ur of Chaldees for a land and future yet to be seen. In Exodus, Moses believed God when he called him to lead his people out of Egypt to the promised land. In Joshua, the nation of Israel believed God's promise when they were told to march seven days around the city of Jericho. Solomon writes in Proverbs, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Jeremiah writes, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. Habakkuk writes, the minor one of the minor prophets who writes, The righteous will live by his faith. And these are just various places in the Old Testament that talks about the necessity of faith of God's people. But the New Testament confirms the same principle as well, Right? the necessity of faith in God for salvation. Jesus would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The Apostle Paul would say in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And in the great chapter of faith, the hall of faith, the Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we come across that well-known chapter, right, where in verse 6 it's written, and without faith it is impossible to please God. For he... The he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who seek him, that God keeps his promises of blessing, of salvation. So then faith in God's promises are an essential, essential theme in the Bible because it's essential to saving faith. And Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, believed in God's promise. It is believing in God that he is able to save that, that, uh, and that he has accomplished our salvation through the death of his son, that he gives forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all of us who believe. Adam and Eve, though, didn't have the Bible as we have it. They didn't have progressive revelation where they learned about, about, about the, the details of Jesus Christ and how he would die and how he would be raised in the grave. 
But they had enough of God's word at that, even at that time. They had the promise from God. Genesis 3.15 was already the gospel in its, in its early forms. And they responded in faith. They believed God. And God was merciful to spare Adam and Eve. He was gracious to give them his promises. And in the midst of the pain of childbirth that they would face, God promised the birth of children. In the midst of inevitable death that they would face, God promised life eternal. God's promise of salvation remains for you and me today. And the only question for us is, do we believe in God's promise? Do I trust in God's promise? And the best way I can get you to answer, ask yourself that question is to ask you, when you stand before God in heaven, if you were to die today and you were to go before God in heaven and stand before him, because it says, the scripture says, for it is appointed for a man once to die, and then comes judgment, right? And judgment is by God, so that means you're going to have to answer to God when you die. So if it's the day you die, you go up to God, and God judges you, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? How would you answer? I hope it will be something like this. You know, I don't deserve to enter your heaven. I know I'm a sinner, and my sin condemns me. I'm not worthy to go in your heaven, but I thank you because you provided your son to die in my place, and you promised that everyone who believes in your son will not perish but have eternal life. And I come and stand before you only because of my faith in your son, whom you gave to us on the cross. That is why, by your grace, you may let me into your heaven. There's something along that line. It's through faith. And do you you have that faith, brothers and sisters? Because that's what saved, that's what Adam and Eve, they believed in God's promise. That's the first first moment uh, that we see in this passage. There's a second moment that we learn here. Uh, and that is that they are, Adam and Eve are clothed in God's provision. Clothed in God's provision. Verse 21, we see next, this next moment that happens in the text. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So God made them clothes. He's the, you know, I know who the first designer. Some of you are into fashion design. You guys come out here, uh, you know, you should all have, you know, God. I want to be like God. God's a fashion designer. He made clothes for us, you know. He made clothes for our first for Adam and Eve, and you can imagine they were probably the best, you know, the best, okay? So, anyways, uh, we see what seems to be an, uh, at least, initially seems to be a basic act of kindness of God, and it surely is that. God is kind. You see someone without clothes, you, you want to clothe them, give them some clothes to wear. And they definitely were, were at this point, they had a form of clothing. Uh, you know, they, actually, they were the first clothing designers, but they were pretty poor at it. You know, they just found some leaves and made loin coverings for themselves. You remember that, right? And they were naked before the fall. They didn't realize that as soon as they ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge, they realized they were naked. And then they started taking fig leaves and making loin coverings for them to cover their loins, it says. It was a feeble attempt. And after the curse of sin, after the pronouncement of the curse, and God made garments for them, garments that would cover their whole body, that would protect them from the elements, that keep them warm when it gets cold. These wore garments would would, in a sense, cover their nakedness. Nakedness, the shame that we experience in nakedness, is really a reflection of the shame of, is a symbolic of the shame that we feel because of sin. Now, the word garments here, elsewhere in Scripture, refers to a tunic, something, a long garment. It's a common robe-like garment for a man or a woman. It was normally worn next to one's skin. Uh, We see it in various places in Scripture. But notice that these are not linen garments. They're not made out of cloth, 
type material. Like, uh, like uh, they're not made of cloth, but they are garments of skin, it says. I mean, garments of skin for them. Skin here is the word for the skin of animals. Skin probably of sheep or a goat or a bull. Uh, you may find it. It's interesting, by the way, that this word skin, that outside of Levit- the, the, the chapter that has the most references to this word is Leviticus 13. But the, the next chapter in all of the Bible that refers to skin, can you guess where it is? Numbers chapter 4. We just in it last week. Okay? Numbers chapter 4. All this emphasis upon covering the Ark of the Covenant with the skin of an animal, time after time and time, every object covered with the skin uh, of an animal. It is significant then that in order to provide a covering for man, an animal has to be killed. An animal has to die for them to be covered so they would not be naked. Perhaps Adam and Eve might have even been able to watch as God had an animal, brought an animal, killed it, poured out its blood, skinned it, and then made it into garments for them to wear. And every time they put on that garment, they wore that garment, it would be a reminder to them of the animal, a life that had to die as their covering. Surely there was a contrast, even as they, they cast off the, the garments, the, the, the fig leaves for the garment that the Lord provided. They see the inadequacy of their fig leaves and the complete adequacy of the covering of God's provision. One was made by man, and all the man's attempts to cover sin are always inadequate. But God's provision for the covering of sin is always adequate and always sufficient. It's more than enough to cover us. This, uh, Adam and Eve needed God's provision to be clothed. Taking together all these things, this, this thought, there was a strong allusion to this very truth, the principle that they find in the rest of Scripture, that man needs the provision from God to cover our sin. Man needs the provision from God to cover our sin. How does he do it? Uh, or how so? First, the words garment clothed, they point to the, these are the same words that point to the priestly garments that were worn by Aaron and his descendants as, and the priests. In Exodus, as well as Leviticus, both these words are used there of, of the garments that the, the Levites or the priests would have to wear. And the whole Levitical system of offerings was given to Israel to show them how they would approach God. And the priests, whenever they approached God, they always had to be appropriately clothed with the garments, the appropriate garments that they wore. These kind of, the same phrase, terminology, this, this clothes that is provided by God, according to God's instructions before approaching the Lord to offer sacrifice, not only on their behalf, but also for the behalf of the people. If they weren't appropriately clothed, the priests would die. Second, this word skin points to the shedding of blood as a covering for man's sin. We find this everywhere in Scripture. We find particularly in Exodus, Leviticus. But in Leviticus 17, 11, God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. It's the blood shed that symbolizes the life that is taken that makes atonement. God, in, in all the sacrifices, in, in the wearing of the skin then, it's a reminder that some life has to be paid. And Hebrew, similarly, when we go all the way to New Testament, Hebrews 9.22, it is written, according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See, the whole sacrificial law was given as a reminder of Israel to their need for covering of their sin through the death of an animal, through the shedding of blood. 
Forgiveness of sins would only come through death, the shedding of an innocent blood. Yet, despite all those sacrifices, we learn later in the New Testament that no one's sins were ever washed away because of all the countless bulls and goats and animals that were offered. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They never took away the sins permanently. It was only a temporary covering. It was an act of faith in God's permanent provision. See, given by God, the sacrificial system pointed to the need for a permanent covering, a permanent clothing, a permanent sacrifice for sin. And we know that to be Jesus our Christ. Hebrews 10, 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. In Galatians 3, 27, Paul speaks of those who have... who have believed as those having, uh, those who have faith as those being clothed with Christ. Isaiah 64 talks about how everything else that we do, all our own attempts to, to work our way, to, to clothe ourselves with righteousness, even our righteous deeds are what? Are filthy rags before God. What we need is to be clothed with Christ and his righteousness. According to Philippians 3.9, it's a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Not only do we believe in God's promises, but when we believe in God's promises, God provides us a covering, to, to clothe, a covering for our sin through faith in him. Even in Revelation 3.5, Jesus says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So how does one get these garments? Jesus, Revelation 3.18, I advise, Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. That's a, that's a reference all the way back to Genesis. So that your nakedness, you're all naked. You see, see, nakedness is just, the shame of nakedness is, a, is just an a, a effect of the curse of sin, the awareness of sin in our lives. That's why we feel shame when we're, when we're naked. It's a reminder of our, it's God's way of reminding us of our fallen state. We need garments purchased, from, purchased or received from, from Christ himself to clothe ourselves. That's why Adam and Eve, that's what Adam and Eve needed. They needed God's help in covering their nakedness. Israel needed God's provision of animal sacrifices for their temporal covering of sin. And ultimately, these all foreshadowed mankind's need for God's provision of the sacrifice of his son to forever clothe us who believe with the righteousness of Christ. All right, that's, that's point number two. Uh, thirdly, the third event, uh, we move on. The third event that hints at the hope of salvation for sinful mankind is found in verses 22 to 24. And uh, we see this, uh, we'll pre- read verse 22 of Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, but now he, and now he might stretch out his, his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Uh, <clears throat> so God again speaking here. Notice he says, has become like one of us. Um, it, it, again, is this plurality that he speaks to when he talks among himself. Is a, he's speaking among the Godhead. So again, it's just a hint of the Trinity here even. But he says, man has become like us. God is deliberating among uh, the three persons of the Trinity, uh, just as it was in Genesis 1.26, over the making of man. And he's deliberating over the destiny of man. He realized what man has become. He, he knows that man has become... Uh, knows good and evil is he has sin in his life he knows evil he he and and the potential is that he might stretch out his hand take from the 
the other tree that's in the garden, the tree of life, and eat from it and live forever. So by eating the forbidden fruit, Adam had become like God, yes, knowing good and evil, but whereas God knew evil from without, uh, without being morally stained by it, Adam and Eve knew evil because they had experienced it. They had tasted, they chose to violate God's command. Now, corrupted by the sinful nature, God knew that if they were to take of that fruit of the tree of life, they would live forever in their fallen state. That's why God says, made a plan. He responded, therefore the Lord God, verse 23, sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Wow. So God basically expelled Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. He cast them out. He drove them out of the paradise to go and cultivate the ground and grow their own food. They would go out and experience the cursed world and the world that was affected because of their sin. And as Adam and Eve cultivated the ground, it would remind them that from the ground they were taken and to the ground they would one day return because now death existed. And as he worked in the ground, he reminded how toilsome, how laborious it would be because he remembers that it was because of their sin. And every time when, when God allowed them to eventually to have children on their own and, and Eve would have that children and there would be pain in childbirth, that would be the reminder to them that they was the curse of sin. And as they would live on earth together as man and woman and they would have the conflicts the, the, throughout their, their days and their years, it would be a reminder to them of the curse of sin. Everything in the world would be a reminder to them of the curse of sin that was brought about by their own choice. But, and so God expelled them into this world that they would never re-enter the Garden of Eden to keep them away from the tree of life as well as to, so that they would know a world cursed of sin. And God placed that cherubim there with the flaming sword. That's just really neat. Um, um, and uh, it's just a, you know, supernatural and somehow it protects so that no one would ever go back in there. But it's just it's kind of interesting. This is kind of really God's first, uh, first passage on uh, law enforcement, you know? Uh, it's the guard in the, the Garden of Eden. So those law enforcement officers, they're Christians, you take this as your life verse, you know? Uh, like the cherubim with the flaming sword. That's kind of you. Um, no, anyways. Now, if you knew... Now, of course, the, some of us think, well, that's so sad. What, why, why couldn't they take If they're going to die, wouldn't it be to just take the, eat the apple and then they live forever? Wouldn't that cure, solve their problem of, of dying? It would have solved their problem of dying, yes. If they eat the tree of the fruit of the tree of life, they would never die. They would live forever. They would never have to be afraid of physical death. But the problem is, as we understand, they spiritually died that day. They spiritually died. They, they had, their sin had entered their heart. It was part of their being at this point. It was part of their nature. It was corrupted. And if they had eaten the fruit of the tree of life, they would have lived forever in that fallen state. You know, just imagine how, how many sins we commit in a lifetime, you know, and how mankind, if, we, if you give them enough time, the evils that we can accomplish, we could blow ourselves up easily. If we were to live forever in our fallen state, what would we do? Well, we'd probably try to build another Tower of Babel, I'm sure. In fact, many of our attempts in the world is trying to build a Tower of Babel, trying to show a way that we're equal to God. But God, in his mercy, 
cast out out of me so they would not continue eat the free true free true free fruit of the true life and continue eternally forever in the state of fallenness you know who's dwells in eternity in a state of fallenness satan his demons fallen angels created perfect but because of their sin because of their nature they dwell, they continue eternity until the lake of fire But because of God's mercy in casting out, expelling Adam and Eve from, the garden, from God's presence in the garden, they would have an opportunity, an opportunity to respond to God's promise, an opportunity to recognize their own sinfulness, an opportunity to know that God is good and has always been for them and loves them, and God has always been there to provide for them in his common grace, but also his grace of provision of salvation. God is always there for them in their, through their through their curse of sin, in fact, and they will learn to trust that God is, is good and loves them and that he has provided for them and their response ought to be trust and faith in him. You know, God gives you this life so that you might learn to of the, your own sinfulness and that he gives you to realize that you're a sinner, that you need God's grace and forgiveness. Some of us need a little more years to realize that, but all, hopefully all of us at some point or other, we're going to remember that, realize that we're sinners and we're desperately sinful, we're wicked, we're hopeless in our ways, and that only by God's grace can we be saved from our sin. It's when God casts us out. And I think as parents, we get this, right? I mean, you know, when we, there are times when our children, they disobey us, they rebel against us, and you, you might have, the, you might have the, the power and authority to compel them to obey, right? We can do that. You can, you can threaten them, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes... A wisdom calls for us to, to let them, in maybe in, a, in our best control situations, to let them experience the consequences of their sin. So they will know and experience sin's effect upon their own lives. That's what parents do. And hopefully we just stay close enough so that we can help pick them up when they, when they fall. Because let's face it, you know, many of us, when we're teens, when we're young adults, we make some of the most foolish mistakes. We all do it. Even with 30, 20, 30, 40, even older we make mistakes. But we tend to make it in our teens and 20s. And hopefully God will give you grace to to learn from the mistakes you make. And parents, we let them go so they can experience the consequence so that they will learn that this is what happens when I choose my own way. And we can say, you know, that's why God gave a better way. And Jesus is a better way. Deter you from further sin. In, every, in a similar way, every man and woman on earth, though, faces the consequences of sin, so we might know the deception and destruction of sin. But sadly, all of us are so sinful, we'll never repent on our own. That's again why we need God. It's again why we need God to come, to, to come and help us. Man, despite mankind's countless ways to remedy the consequence of sin, we have not found a cure yet. We've sought many, we've improved our technology. We've improved our, 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 uh, our, uh, our life kind of comforts. We've, we've gone far distances into space, but we haven't figured out our sin problem. We can't cure it. We cannot solve it. We need Christ. And it's, God allows the experience, all the, search the whole universe, and you realize wherever we go, their sin is. Because we live in a world cursed of sin. Our 
but our separation is designed by God as a means of his grace to bring us to repentance, to bring us to, to go back to him. Well, these are the three. Uh, these are three kind of moments in the life of Adam and Eve that we see in this passage to, that give us a hint of God's promise of salvation for mankind. And I hope that you will just see this, be encouraged by it, because God, has, God has, continues to be faithful. Uh, a man is, uh, he's just simply has, driven, uh, is, has been driven from God's presence because of our sin, but we're not without hope. In, that, in being cast out, we experience the consequences of sin so that we go back to God. We remember, we go back and remember his provision for us, and we, we remember his promises for us, and God has provided for us all that we need for salvation through his son, who came as a substitutionary atonement, who died in our place, so that we can have, who can be forgiven and believe, who believe in him. And uh, may, uh, this is our God, and, and he's provided for it. Hopefully, just this passage connects for you some of the things we're learning in Numbers with uh, this passage, and we'll see it all throughout the rest of scriptures, this need for uh, a covering of our sin because of, because of our sin, but through a life that is offered, life that culminates in the offering of Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder for, of, um, of that we're not without hope, even in our sin, that you provide for us. You provide for us your mercy and grace so that though we, we've really blown it as mankind, we, are, we will never find the way out of our sin. We oftentimes give in to sin. We are cursed. Uh, we're under this curse, and we're hopeless against it. But, Lord, not with you, for you have provided the way out. You provided the promise of salvation in your Son. You've provided the, the covering of sin uh, through, in your Son. And, Lord, we, know, we thank you, Father, that the presence where we have been removed from your presence, Lord, you have been made open again. Just as the veil was torn in two on the day when Christ died, our access to you has been made possible through Christ. And even now, we, we access your throne in prayer. And Lord, we look forward to the day when it will be completely finalized, when we will enter into your presence, bodily and in, in body and in soul. And Lord, until then, help us to be faithful, help us to love you, help us to respond in worship, for you are our God. And thank you, Father, for your, uh, your faithfulness towards us and your holiness. And your, but at the same time, your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.